So I'm going to tell you one of the side benefits of being in this business for a long time. Numbers. Numbers, the top numbers, the top numbers. My iPhone's contact list is a crazy who's who of random sports and entertainment figures. Some are famous, Brett Favre, Phil Jackson. Some, well, are more of the Benny Agbayani ilk, which is awesome in and of itself, because if someone ever says to me, hey, what's Benny Agbayani up to? I can just call. But the best part of it all is a pure joy of swapping. And if you're in this business, you've almost certainly swapped numbers with a peer at some point. Can you give me X and I'll give you Y? Can I have C and I'll give you D? Random shit. Pooh Richardson for Pete Filson or Ray Guy for Butch Husky. Which is how, several years ago, I wound up with the greatest phone number ever. It cost me a Hall of Famer, but now, whenever the mood hits, I can call Sir Mix-A-Lot. My name is Jeff Perlman. I'm the New York Times bestselling author of nine books and the host of Two Writers, Sling and Yang, a podcast where one writer, me, talks writing with another writer every single week. Today's episode features Jeff Gluck, the athletics outstanding NASCAR writer and a guy who's had a crazy few weeks. This is episode number 162. Let's sling some yang. Dad, being quarantined sucks, and so does your podcast. Well, Jeff, fellow blue hen, I haven't had too many of us on this uh, podcast. I just want to jump right into it. I mean, this week obviously has been a absolutely insane week for you. And when I, even when I was trying to schedule a time with you, you said, you know, we have bubble coming up in five minutes and, you know, I have to write off of that. So we'll do it later. What is this week or this little span with everything bubble wall has been like for you? You know, it's tough because this has sort of been the first time that I've ever found my voice or, or felt comfortable, uh, you know, speaking out. Unlike your Twitter feed, which I, I admire your your political outspokenness and stuff, but I, I don't know. I've just always been hesitant, and especially working in the NASCAR environment, you know, it's it's sort of like you know I'm I'm just gonna I'm just gonna stay out of out of everything politics. But of course, I I don't think that racism is a political issue, and and so with the whole Black Lives Matter stuff and everything that's been going on, and especially with NASCAR coming out and being sort of at the forefront of this in sports, you know, the Confederate flag ban, all stuff, I've felt comfortable for the first time really speaking out on social issues and saying, you know what? No, screw this. If you guys are going to unfollow me because you want to still bring your flag to the track, a racist symbol and stuff like that, bye. And it's been, it's been freeing in that way. So when NASCAR comes out and, you know, as, as many of us are now these days in the media world, you're in a position where you are a reporter sometimes and a columnist at other times. So you know, my opinion is, you know, I back this Confederate flag banner. I back what NASCAR is doing. And so when this, this whole thing came out about a noose being found at Talladega and you're seeing the reaction and, and the drivers go into it, you know, of course my reaction is to speak out against it. There's no place for racist act. And, and NASCAR's statement was so strong of like, this is a heinous act of racism. You know, they said factually what they had found if that's a situation and they, and then you say, well, let's, let's, let's wait till all the facts are in, you know, of, of what they NASCAR is telling you is, is a, a noose found hanging in the stall and you go, let's wait till all the facts are in on that. That would be sort of like the opposite of the right thing to do right now. I felt like, of course you want to speak out against this and, and condemn this in every, in every possible way. 
So then when it comes out that it wasn't directed at, at Bubba, it was a noose, but it wasn't directed at Bubba. It had been there since last year. Well, then all the, you know, the media haters, the, the fringe sites, it, they're just dunking on you and saying, you know, you owe an apology for jumping to conclusions that there was a racist, uh, you know, all this stuff. And uh, just, just relentless. I mean, everybody accusing NASCAR of a hoax and Bubba from being Jesse Smollett and all this stuff. And, and that was hard to take. Finally, NASCAR comes out, you know, a couple days later and puts out the photo. So then you see, oh, yes, see, it was a noose. So that was some sort of vindication. But when there was, when all they had come out, the FBI just said, hey, there's no hate crime here. That had been there as a garage door since last year. It was a really bad moment. Uh, I think, I mean, it is good in the sense that it wasn't somebody that did a hate crime, but a bad moment from a journalism perspective of your credibility, if that makes sense. I have a lot of questions about this. So you, um, you tweeted four hours ago, apologies to my Twitter friends who I normally chat with, but I haven't been able to see your tweets the last few days. The volume of the replies and ugliness is still going. I think there may even be bots involved. Hopefully that will end soon and I can see your tweets again. So what has it actually been like? I mean, I've been on Twitter for you know, 11 years or something. Right. So it's, I, I feel like I'm used to, or I was used to, you know, the various controversies or something when, whether it's, it's, it's news or an opinion that you tweet or something and you get blowback from it. And sometimes things go beyond the NASCAR bubble and it goes into a more mainstream thing, whether it's, you know, a big crash or social issue, whatever. But this has just been so far beyond anything I've ever experienced. Nothing's come close to this. I mean, this is like, we're talking like thousands of tweets an hour, I would say. And wow. earlier, like when, when it was just the Confederate flag ban, I was still reading through every single tweet I got. Yes, there was hundreds coming in. A lot of them were from people that followed me, though. They're from NASCAR fans, so you're seeing the good and the bad. I would say 90% of these tweets that I'm getting now are not from people that even follow me. So you're seeing... It's, it's blown up way into the mainstream. And it, I try to go onto people's profiles and like, are these real people? Or because you're seeing some of the same memes pop up. Like it, there'll be a, a picture of Bubba Wallace and Jesse Smollett in the Step Brothers, Will Ferrell type thing. Their heads are on the Step Brothers and it'll say the Hoax Brothers or something. And, and you'd be like, wow. And you look at somebody's profile and it's like a lot of their tweets don't even make sense. And the, you know, it's sort of like the you know, they have the Q in their name or whatever. And, you know, it's, it's really bizarre. So it's so overwhelming my feed right now, because I think it's, it's become one of these things where the bots can view it as a divisive issue. Maybe it is. I'm sure there's some of it's real people too, a lot, but it's definitely been seized upon to like, Hey, let's, let's take this issue and further, you know, incite racism and stuff like that. And so I can't even really see the normal, NASCAR fans right now in my timeline. It's just so relentless. You know, I'll go away for five minutes and there's like three, 400 more replies in, in five minutes. One thing, I'm not a, uh, not a Skip Bayless admirer at all, but one thing I will say for the guy, he never reads his Twitter feed. And I think there's some sanity preservation. Why even read it? Like why even, you said you were going through them all. Like why read your Twitter feeds? Well, I feel like I owe a lot of my, where I am in journalism to being uh, be having that interaction with the readers, you know, before I went to the athletic, I had my own website that was, um, reader funded, a Patreon site. Uh, you know, I do these tweet ups every week when I'm at the track where 
I tell people where I'm going to be and they come meet with me and we talk about things. So, you know, understanding what, how they view what, whatever's going on in NASCAR, how they view certain drivers and having the pulse of that. I feel like it's really important for me to hear them. You know, I certainly don't respond to all of them. Uh, it was just too many, but to understand, okay, the general, you know, NASCAR fan thinks this about this rule change about what this driver said. So I feel like that informs my coverage in a lot of ways. As soon as I can go back to reading them, I will. Now, a lot of times it's definitely draining and soul sucking for sure. But um, for the most part, if it's just an average race, I've, I feel like I, I can take some of the stuff you see, you know? So this happens, you know, they, the, the word comes out that there was a noose and blah, blah, blah. What is your, you write for The Athletic now, which is different than writing for a newspaper or using your own site. Like, what is your first impulse and your first reaction? How did you go about sort of covering it? So, you know, you're gearing up for this race. The race gets rained out. You're like, okay, whatever. Let's go about our, go about our evening and we'll uh, pick up the, the work from home coverage uh, the next morning. Well, then Sunday night, you know, this email comes just out of nowhere. And it's like uh, an act of racism has occurred. A noose has been found at Talladega. And this is a day where already on that day, people had driven by the track and tried to block traffic with Confederate flags, you know, small group of protesters. And then a plane flies over the track with a Confederate flag and a banner that says defund NASCAR. So, you know, this, this flag ban and, and their, their first race going to the deep South, there's this heightened sense of tension. And then, so this comes out and again, I, you know, I've talked to NASCAR about this and, and they even have said later, well, we, we probably should have put alleged in there. There was no, nothing soft about the statement, right? And, and so I don't think, you know, there's no media at the track in the infield right now. So there's no one that could go and see this or say or talk to crew members uh, in the garage. So we're sort of blind there. So when NASCAR comes out with this, you know, they're, they're in the past not always the most transparent organization. You, you would think that in the past they might have even, you know, swept this under the rug until somebody asked about it or caught wind of it. So for, for them to break it this way, you, you're thinking for sure, from a journalism standpoint, without a doubt, this is what's happened. This is exactly, they know what it is. You know, from their perspective, as it turns out, seeing the noose with all that's happened in the stall of the only black driver, they show it to the FBI that night. The FBI says, wow, that's a noose. That's bad. We're going to send 15 agents in the morning. So NASCAR is, you know, I feel like rightly, rightfully alarmed. Who wouldn't think that that's a news? But there, the statement, you know, I, I guess in hindsight, from a journalism standpoint, you sort of wish they would have said, we've found something suspicious. We've found something that looks like it could be bad. If so, it's very disturbing. We promise a full investigation, blah, blah, blah. But I think in the situation they were in as well, if they don't condemn it, people are going to be like, you idiots, NASCAR. You say you found a noose in the stall. And you're saying this might be, everybody was in a bad spot here, but I felt like from a journalism standpoint, we all sort of just walked off a cliff following it because there was no reason to, you know, reading that statement. I, again, I go back to what, what, what could I have done differently? I just, um, but the problem is Jeff, we're all taught, you know, by, by our professor Fleischman, who we both had, you know, you're, the credibility is all you have, right? So yeah, I spent my entire career trying to really be cautious about reporting news, reporting stories. Even if you get something wrong one time, people are always going to be able to go back and question and say, well, yeah, but you're also the guy that said this and this was wrong. So I feel like 
my reputation, you know, the trustworthiness of your readers is, is paramount. So when that, that feeling, when it, they came out Tuesday, the FBI came out Tuesday and said, yeah, this wasn't what it appeared to be. And just people are, are, you know, you're part of the fake news. You're, you know, the first time in my life, I really just felt just, I don't know, helpless, I guess that, and you know, I think my, my media colleagues felt the same way because everybody had just sort of gone down this road thinking this is what it was as NASCAR did, as the drivers did, as everybody did only to find out it had already been there. And you just feel like, wow. I mean, my whole reputation here uh, is, is taking a hit and it's going to take a while to recover from that. It seems really hard to be a member of the media because you can't go into nuance. Like a situation like this does not call for the nuance that it deserves. Like people on Twitter with our limited characters, they don't want nuance. They don't want you to say, but look, here's the thing. And you have to understand, and this is blah, blah, blah. Like it seems like it's harder than ever to get through to people and say, look, this is what happened. Here's why I covered it like this. This is, they just want to say you're a fucking asshole or you're a fucking part of the media or go fuck yourself or blah, 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 blah. I don't know how you address this and come out looking the way you did. You know, I think once it happened, it was just sort of like you judging from the, the Twitter reaction of all the people being like, you know, see, this is why people don't trust the media and all this stuff. And you're part of the problem. You're, you're dividing America with this race baiting stuff. When you see that reaction at that point, when it reaches that level, there's just no winning. There's nothing you can say. There's no point in trying to argue point by point on Twitter or say, look, it really you know, appeared to be this way, the, the odds that it wasn't or, or whatever. I feel like I'm an introspective person and I, especially when it comes to the job and you really try to feel like what you could have done differently. But I just don't know in this situation. I just think it was like the worst coincidence. And, and the bottom line I go back to is it was still a noose. All these people that was saying, well, it was just a garage pull. How could everybody be tricked by a garage pull down and all this stuff? And, and uh, you know, the bottom line is, there was a noose there. I don't know, you know, why, how somebody couldn't have discovered it when it was there last October um, and all the stuff. But if it had just been a loop on a garage thing, like people were making out to be originally, I would have felt even worse. But when, when you see the photo and there's seven things on it and then NASCAR says, look, we went, we contacted every single track around the country that we race at. We inspected almost 1,700 garage stalls. Out of all the ropes hanging down, 11 were tied into a loop that had a knot in them, and one was tied in a noose, and it was in Bubba Wallace's garage stall at Talladega out of almost 1,700. So when you see the people on Twitter that say, you know, you're an idiot, all the stuff that, you know, you don't understand, this is so commonplace, at least from that perspective, it makes you feel better. Like, no, it's not, and this was just, I don't know if you can explain it, but from a journalism standpoint, maybe, maybe the, it's just that I, I saw some people that were saying, you know, look, we need to wait till all the facts come in on this kind of stuff. And, uh, it's, it's the people like Clay Travis and people like that. And you're just normally like, Oh my God, are, are you, are you listening to this up? Are yourselves? And now the fact that they were right about this is just, that's a tough one to swallow. Cause normally you're just like, you guys are idiots. Why don't you see what's going on here? You know, what is Bubba Wallace like? You know, I always felt like uh, out of all the NASCAR drivers now, he has the most personality. And the fact that he's the only black driver, you know, you have a lot of NASCAR drivers who are, are really sort of the corporate trained, media trained thing. You know, they don't like to say things controversial. And after NASCAR's had the retirement of guys like Dale Jr. 
Jeff Gordon, Tony Stewart, you know, sort of like the, the guys who could really uh, go beyond the NASCAR bubble in terms of media and things like that. Right now, a lot of people haven't even heard of any NASCAR drivers. You know what I mean? Like there's been a, there's sort of a personality void. Bubba has this really engaging personality where he is completely raw. Like he just says whatever is on his mind. Sometimes it's bad. Sometimes it's charming and funny. Sometimes you're like, whoa, dude, like, whew, that is, you're going to get yourself in trouble for saying that. But you know, if any, if any driver could be like in a reality show or something and is compelling enough to do it, it would be him. And then if you add that he's the only black driver, it's just like he has the superstar capability there. But the problem is he's on a team that is just not very good in racing. It's really not so much about your talent. I mean, I would say it's probably 80% about your car, 20% about your talent. And you only get a fast car money buys speed. He's on a team that doesn't have a lot of sponsorship, so he can only make it. I mean, even if you put the very best driver in his car, I mean, they're probably going to finish right where he does for the most part. So it's been holding him back. The reason you haven't heard of him is because he finishes 15th to 20th every week. He's got to win to really go to that next level. If NASCAR can get that, uh, you know, help him find sponsorship or whatever, then things could change. But for now, people will hear of him now and be like, oh, I want to follow this guy. And they're going to tune in for the race coming up. And they're going to be like, why is he not, he's nowhere near the front, you know? You wrote a piece a while ago, um, a driver named Kyle Larson was fired by his racing team for using the N-word. I've been thinking a lot about sort of race and sports lately, especially in regards to the Mike Gundy situation at Oklahoma State. Tommy Tuberville running for Senate in Alabama and all of a sudden having these preposterously extreme positions about Muslims and affirmative action across the board. You cover a sport that needed to have a Confederate flag ban. Like they actually needed to say no more Confederate flags at the races, which is kind of insane if you think about it. Are most of these racers in 2020, are they enlightened people who have grown up in a world that's very diverse and blah, blah, blah? Or are they guys who were comfortable using the N-word growing up and look at Bubba Wallace more as a novelty than a peer? Yeah, it's interesting because there's only a few drivers now from the South. I think the, the state that has the most drivers is California. The guy who won the championship last year is from Vegas. So, you know, they're, they're, you have definitely have those guys that come sort of like from that dirt track background and the, the country roots or whatever. But a lot of them have sort of seen the world. But I think the problem is only now are they sort of open to seeing what their privilege has been or whatever. I think some of, the, some of these guys have gone through their, you know, they, they've, they've raced their whole life. That's all they've done since they were six years old. And even though they're not, you know, rednecks or whatever, hicks from the country, all they've known is is being at the racetrack. That's their world experience. And only now in the last few weeks have you really seen them go, huh, I see, like like a lot of people I think in the country, oh wow, my experience as a white person in this country is different than a black person may have. When I'm pulled over by the police, it's different. You know, so unfortunately, a lot of the social changes had to fall on Bubba's shoulders. He's been the one that's having to push NASCAR you know, a certain way because people are like, well, what does the black guy think? You know, you've had some, uh, some of the drivers who are really trying to step up and try to be allies, um, and support him and say, you know, I realize this too, or, or whatever, but still it always comes about, comes back to what does the black NASCAR driver think of this? And what does he have to say? I think a lot of the drivers you can really tell by their comments are listening and learning for the first time in their adult lives. 
about this and keeping an open mind where their comments before about like Kaepernick or whatever would have been different. Now they're like, Oh, okay. I could see why someone would kneel. You know, I may, I may not kneel, but I could see why someone would want to. So that's a change in itself. Most of them though, I do think are not sort of the stereotype. It's just that they haven't been exposed to reasons where they would need to think big picture about this kind of stuff. If you had to take a guess, total guess, 2020 election percentage of NASCAR drivers who are not voting for Donald Trump. That's a tough one. I, I've been thinking about this more recently because, you know, Trump came to the Daytona 500 this year and, you know, a lot of the drivers, you know, just sort of lined up to meet this guy, right? Like they were so excited and putting on their social media and all this stuff. You know, that's, you know, obviously I would say probably 90% of them or more are, are Republicans, but I think like some Republicans out there, uh, there's a lot of drivers who, even if they are Republican or have been voting that way in the past, don't agree with, you know, how he conducts himself or, or the, the things he says or the racism or whatever. So I think some of them, I don't know that they would vote for Biden, but some of them might just sit it out, you know, um, yep. instead of, instead of go for it. But I, I'd still say, you know, you're probably going to have probably 70% of them vote for Trump. I would, I would guess. I, I don't really, I don't, I'm just throwing that out there completely randomly. Certainly if, if some of the drivers are, are Democrats or outspoken liberals or something like that, they've, they've kept it to themselves. As I mentioned, we're both University of Delaware products. I graduated in 94, you graduated in 2002. We share an affinity for the late Bill Fleischman, who taught us both, who was both our sports writing uh, professor and something of a mentor. How did you end up, how does a guy decide on NASCAR? Of all the things an aspiring sports writer can cover, how does one go to NASCAR? Well, I certainly, you know, I grew up in California and I certainly wasn't a NASCAR fan. And even in college, I can remember back then in Fleischman's classes, we saw the overhead projector, you know, and he put like the um, slide things or whatever and of his recent articles and talk about them. Uh, and he would put his NASCAR articles, you know, as examples and start talking about NASCAR. I remember sitting in the back of his classes in a dark room with my friends like snickering at you're like, oh my God, he's on this NASCAR stuff again. Like, dude. <laughs> Nobody cares. Like I hated NASCAR. Um, I remember when Dale Earnhardt died and I was at the review offices. The review, I just want to say is a student newspaper at the university. Yes. I'm sorry. There, this, and um, there was this guy, Mike Frazier, who uh, was working at the paper at the time. And I remember him crying um, because Dale Earnhardt had just died in the Daytona 500. And I was just looking at him like, Oh my God, dude, get it together. Who like I, I was so unsympathetic. Like, I and mean, it sounds terrible now because it's somebody's death, but I just didn't get it. I didn't get any of the NASCAR stuff at all. But my first job out of college was in Eastern North Carolina. So there was a lot of NASCAR interests. What was the newspaper? Uh, it was called the Rocky Mount Telegram. Okay. Uh, it was about 50 miles east of Raleigh. And my uh, sports editor there, he's like, Hey, I, I think you should go down to this NASCAR race at Rockingham. And I was like, no, don't send, no, 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 like, no, please don't send me to NASCAR. And he's like, no, you know, you, you should, you know, you need to learn about how to cover all the different sports or whatever. It was, so I kind of went Fleischman and said too, like, that's what he, he'd be like, go cover girls lacrosse, go cover field hockey. You, you don't know when your newspaper is going to say, hey, go cover this and you need to know the rules. So I go to this NASCAR race in 2004 and sort of this was sort of the height of it when it was fastest growing sport and you know, it was kind of moving mainstream for a couple of years. And I was like, dude, this is awesome. Like as a sports fan, the magnitude of like their, their arenas, essentially the racetracks were like way bigger than football stadiums filled with people. You know, the access from a media standpoint, 
you know, they let you go down onto pit road before the race, right where the drivers are. They let you go to the driver's meeting where all the drivers are sitting, listening to the rules, you know, an hour before the race. Um, you know, you, you're the, it, the access was something that I'd never experienced getting to cover some of the limited NFL stuff or MLB stuff. And I was like thrilled by that. I was just like, man, this is cool. So being in North Carolina, I just kept covering it more and more like whatever races were in driving distance, you know, at a small paper, you can do whatever you want. Uh, hey, I want to write about this. Okay. Yeah, sure. So I just got into it from that standpoint and just kept covering it and just kept moving up the ladder. I remember when I was at Sports Illustrated, they sent me to cover uh, senior golf. And I saw the writers sitting in the clubhouse watching it on TV. And I was like, no, I'm not going to do that. I'm going to walk the course. And I'm walking the course with a notepad. And I have no idea what I'm doing whatsoever. If you sent me to a NASCAR race right now, I would have no remote clue how to cover a NASCAR race. Are you, do you just sit and watch from above? Are you taking notes? Are you checking Twitter? What are you, what are you actually doing as you cover a race? Yeah, it's evolved over the years. You know, there's a media center at every track and it's in the middle of the infield. Most of them are windowless, like the golf media centers, and you just watch it on TV. And I've always felt like that does such a, why are you, if you're just going to watch it on TV like everybody else, why are you there? You're giving no insight, no additional insight to your, to your readers. So at most tracks, I'll try to go up to the press box, watch the majority of the race, and then you can see your way up above. You've got a bird's eye view, the whole track kind of thing. And then with about like 50 laps to go, I'll go down because you've got to talk to the drivers afterwards, um, you know, if you can. And, and they all are on pit road. So I'll, I'll go position myself, move my, back, my stuff back down there. Um, and then as soon as the race ends, everybody pulls up on pit road and it's your time to like go get the people you can get go get insight, try to get your angles. Everybody's scattering all around kind of stuff. Are people accessible generally? Um, NASCAR's really, really increased the access over the last few years. We complained for a while because it used to be the drivers would pull up and they would just take off and you could chase maybe one guy and then you'd come back and see if anybody else is there and most people were gone. Now NASCAR does like um, a media bullpen. It's sort of like um, – it's sort of like I think the Olympic area where they have they have to come through at least you know they might not want to talk for very long but they at least have to come give the media a chance. Uh, it's, it's in this agreements like for their race winnings and stuff. They have if the, if you are in the top ten or NASCAR requests your presence, you have to come to this media bullpen after the race. Mm -hmm. So that's been really helpful because you know that you're going to get most of the storyline guys. The access, you know, even leading up to the race, NASCAR has done a really good job of giving us more and more people. They make every driver available um, during qualifying the day before the race. So if you're working on a feature story, you know, you can kind of get guys to the side and be like, hey, man, like, so tell me about this, you know, and we didn't used to have that ability. So uh, up till COVID, at least it's been a good time to, to cover the sport. Before we continue with two writers singing in, a quick word from our sponsor. Hey, this is Jeff Perlman, and I'm here with my daughter, Casey, who, despite being raised Jewish and having a bat mitzvah, has accepted Jesus Christ as her Lord and Savior. What are you talking about? You told me five minutes ago you loved Jesus. No, not Jesus Christ. Yvonne de Jesus, longtime shortstop. I love him, and I wanted to ask if you'd be willing to buy me a throwback Yvonne de Jesus jersey from 503 Sports, kings of the throwback sports merchandise. Did he turn stone into bread? No, but he once went three for four with two doubles against the Cardinals. I'll see what I can do. 
Do you find at all that there's any correlation between the whole quote unquote fake news movement? And obviously you are dealing with a conservative clientele and drivers or people in NASCAR having less trust of the media. You know, I think for the most part, we sort of get spared as being looked at as the media. Sometimes it happens and, you know, you can see the, uh, the conservative talking points against the media sort of come out or whatever. Um, but I think that, you know, because NASCAR, I, I think the NASCAR media core is almost like the same as it would be if, as if it was like a, um, like a local sports team or like in a local market, because it's the same people. It's everybody's together at the same place every week. Right. So it's the same 10 faces or whatever. There's really, there's no daily newspapers left covering NASCAR. And so, you know, you have your sort of partner media, like the Fox and NBC people, you know, you have AP and other than that, like us, the athletic, a few other, you know, racing type outlets, but it's really not that big of a media core. So there's a lot of trust there because it's this, it's just the same faces every week. So the drivers kind of know you, they know you're, you're part of the traveling circus. And so I think that helps with like not keeping the arm's length distance, I guess. And the other thing about NASCAR that's really helpful from a media standpoint is all these guys, their living depends on sponsorship, right? They have to have some sort of personality. If, if somebody is a total dick and a total douchebag over and over again, the media is going to report these quotes and the fans are going to see it. The sponsors are going to see it. And the sponsors are going to go, I don't want to be associated with this guy and drop the, drop the driver. So the driver knows he's got to be somewhat personable and media accessible so that they, he can get his message out there of like, hey, I'm a fun guy. Sponsor me. Fans like me. You know? And then that's how their salary gets paid. That's how they have a ride. So that, that helps too. You, know, you can't really afford to be a huge dick. Before you went to The Athletic, you had your own site, which was Patreon funded. It's obviously a, a sort of route that a lot of journalists have taken over the last few years. Some with pretty decent success, some with no success. Why did you go that route? And uh, I guess what were the sort of complications, highs, lows of it? Yeah, so I was with USA Today and um, my sports editor there, uh, it was a different one that had hired me and he wasn't too keen on me relocating out of Charlotte where all the NASCAR teams are. But my wife had just gotten her degree and was going to be start working as a child life specialist at a children's hospital. And those jobs aren't easy to come by. So she was having to do a nationwide search and they're like, yeah, you can't, you can't relocate. And I was like, why the NASCAR, even though the NASCAR teams are based in Charlotte, all the races are all over the country every week. It's no different than one of the NFL writers traveling out of a home market, but they didn't see it that way. So they're like, now you can't move. So I'm like, okay, well I'm gonna have to quit. And they're like, okay. So then I was like, okay, great. So now I, I just moved to Portland, Oregon and uh, <laughs> like, I'm going to have to start my own. Maybe, I don't know if this is going to work, but I'll try to start my own deal and see if there's enough traction with it, travel money and salary out of Patreon stuff to see if it worked. And it, it, to my surprise, it worked like right away. Like the response was basically like, yeah, you know, we, we enjoy your coverage. There's not that much NASCAR coverage these days. The readers pitched in and kept me around. Most people, you know, five to 10 bucks a month. And I was content to do that for a while. I mean, it was, you would have your highs and lows of, you know, NASCAR would do something dumb and you'd lose a lot of subscribers or something like, I'm done with NASCAR. I hate this rules change. And then they would, you would see a direct correlation of your monthly income go down. You're like, oh, that's not good. Right. Or there'd be like an exciting race and, 
you know, or the season would start or something and you'd be like, Oh, I got a bunch more subscribers. That's cool. But for the most part, I mean, it was, I think it was going to work for another few years. I don't know if I would have made it through this pandemic with all the unemployed people and NASCAR being a blue collar, you know, group, uh, group of fans for the most part, but there was a lot of freedom in it. Um, and if people have enough of a following to make it work, I think the, I think they'd be surprised how much support's there. Although I was doing it at a time when I was sort of one of the first people to get on there. So now, now everybody's trying to do crowdfunded stuff. I don't know if it would have the same impact, but I, for the most part, really enjoyed what I was doing. I would have stayed there long-term, but the athletic called and I just had a baby and, you know, they come with health insurance and a stable salary that doesn't fluctuate every month. And yeah. I'm like, nah, that's pretty, pretty hard to pass up. So how many readers did you have at your height? Uh, you like how many patrons? Yeah. Excuse me. Yeah. I think I had about, um, 17 or 1800 maybe I want to say. Um, and that doesn't sound like a huge number, but you know, when you take that and most of them are, you know, it's probably an average, they were averaging say seven bucks a month. I mean, you can totally make that work. Now you got to pay a lot of taxes for being self-employed, of course. And, um, a lot of the money I was getting, I would have to turn around and put right back into my travel because people, if they're a patron of yours and saying, Hey, I'm paying so you can be at the racetrack with your coverage. You can't be like, just pocket the money and not show up at the track. So I was trying to get to as many races as I could, but that still gives you a decent salary, you know, as long as you manage your travel money, right. And stuff. So it's, it's amazing when you think about like, you, you don't need that many people as an individual to make stuff work. Cause there's no, if you do the website yourself, if you do the travel yourself, you know, you cut out a lot of the middle people, you know, there's no advertising to worry about cause it was all patron funded. So if you feel like you can get a thousand to 2000 supporting uh, patrons or people that are going to pay for your stuff, I feel like you can make a living off that. When you're doing that, do you miss having sort of, an automatic platform where you know, whatever, USA Today obviously isn't what it was, but you, you at least have 50,000 people or 70,000 people reading you every day. Is there, do you ever feel like you're screaming into a tin can? Uh, I don't think so, just because in the sense that, you know, Twitter allows all of us to still take our audience with us. And I always felt like even at USA Today and, you know, when I was at SB Nation and stuff, it's really the people, you, I always felt like people are, I was speaking to like, hey, here's my new article or whatever. Those are, that's, those are my Twitter followers. I'm sure some people find it through other means. But, I mean, let's face it, as, as much of a hell site as Twitter is at times, a lot of our traction comes from there. Like whether it's an article that a lot of other people retweet and it helps get out there. So I still felt like I was talking to the same people, you know, and I still feel like I am now, even at The Athletic. I mean, when I graduated college, we could have, I could have never anticipated having that audience that, you just say, Hey, I switched jobs. I'm over here now. And people are like, okay, I'll just click over here. Great. You know, I actually have a NASCAR question and I am a NASCAR idiot, but I've always wondered this. So here's my opportunity. You're a guy like Jeff Gordon. So Jeff Gordon's about my, it's about 50 now, right? Jeff Gordon. Why could Jeff Gordon not be a competitive racer? Like I get it. You're playing baseball, you're playing football, your skills diminish, blah, blah, blah. Why could Jeff Gordon at age 50 not say I'm coming back and I'm going to kick ass and I'm going to have a great car and I'm going to compete with all these guys. Why does it not work as you get older? You know, I think it does, but a lot of these guys, you know, cause this is, this is a question that even the drivers, this is a, a good topic for drivers. I mean, people debate this, uh, even Dale jr. A couple years before he retired, he's like, what is it that makes these guys retire? Is it, you know, lack of hand eye coordination? Is it your reflexes aren't as good? I, a lot of it is 
their, their desire. I mean, they've made a lot of money already. You know, they're late forties. The schedule is brutal. It's 38 race weekends a year. They never get any, any time off with their families. They've had this, you know, they, they might live in mansions, have private jets, but they're gone on the road all the time, all over the country. And I think for some of the guys that they've accomplished everything they want to accomplish. So the motivation isn't there anymore. Um, I, I really think that a lot of the guys probably could race into their late forties, but it's interesting. One of my colleague, former colleagues, uh, David Smith, he, he's a stats guy and he has done all the analytics and a driver's peak age is age 39. So up until age 39, you keep getting better and better and better and better. And somewhere right around 40, I don't know if it is the, the motivation or their skills diminishing or whatever, they start to slide downhill. Now that it's not a huge drop off necessarily because the experience and the seat time and their knowledge of the tracks can really carry them for a while. Some of the guys, they can, they can race in their late forties, early fifties and be fine. But a lot of them, I think they get to their mid forties and they're like, I've been doing this 20, 25 years. I'm, I'm good. You know, right. what, why, why am I still doing this? So I think it's more of that than, than, than the actual physical skills. And a uh, final question, because I like to ask everyone this nowadays. What's your best confrontation from the, uh, your entire career? Uh, I, I used to, to clash with Tony Stewart a lot. Later in his career, we kind of ended up getting along, but he, he didn't like my style of questioning. And there was one time where he was on this running thing for a few weeks where he wanted to raise money for me to retire. Like he's, he's basically like, let's get rid of Jeff Gluck. And he would talk about it in his press conferences. It was, I, I tried to play along at first, but it was highly embarrassing. So he wins this race uh, at Watkins Glen in New York. And this is probably 2009. And the first thing he says is, all right, I want to update you guys on the Jeff Gluck retirement fund. Here's your chance to um, pass the hat. He takes off the hat that he had just won with in victory lane. And he has his PR guy pass it around the entire media center. And people are putting money into the hat, like my colleagues. And at the end, he comes and dumps it on my table. And he's like, here you go, buy yourself dinner or something. And it was like $20.52, a Twizzler and a pencil that people had put into this hat. I was trying to play it off, but it was so embarrassing at the time because I was young and trying to get established. And here was this veteran guy. And, you know, but um, ultimately, we kind of came to a better understanding. I think he sort of got what bloggers do or, you know, that kind of style. Cause I was at SB nation at the time later in his career. And, and now we've, we get along fine, but it was just at the time, like, this is one of the hardest, you know, guys who always calls out the media. And it was just like, Oh my gosh, this is just all the veteran reporters laughing, you know, that kind of thing. It's just, it sucked. Do you feel like now here you are older in your career, more established in your career? Like I always think back to different confrontations I had when I was a young reporter and how we're handled now as an older reporter. And I think as an older reporter, I'm much more inclined to be like, you know what, go fuck you, fuck you. I'm not, yeah, like yeah. Will Clark, baseball player Will Clark, gave me a lot of shit when I was younger. And when I was older and had to interview him, I literally, he started giving me shit. And I was like, you know what, fuck you, I don't need this. Right. You feel like you have more fuck you, I don't need this now than you did at 20 whatever? Oh, for sure. And I also feel like I have the platform to sort of shame people if it came to that. Yeah. Like, and you don't even have to do it outwardly. People pick up on what you're saying. Like if you say, this was this guy's entire quote after the race. And it was like, I'm tired of you people. I don't have to answer to you. And you just tweeted that. That's all you, you don't even, you just say that and let Twitter do their work and be like, what an asshole. Wow. What a tremendous dick. And then that guy's getting tagged in the mentions 
So you, you almost, like once you're established with enough of a platform, you don't even have to do it. You can just say, okay, well, that's what happened. That's your quote. Here you go, world. You know, and yep. uh, it becomes a lot easier that way. Well, Jeff, I appreciate you doing this. Uh, I know this has been a tough few, few weeks and kind of a weird run in your career. You know, much respect for a fellow bluehead. I appreciate you doing this. I, I appreciate it. I want to thank today's guest, Jeff Gluck, for joining me on Two Writers Sling and Yang. You can follow Jeff on Twitter at Jeff underscore Gluck and read his stuff in The Athletic. One can listen to Two Writers Sling and Yang on pretty much every podcast medium, and reviews are always appreciated. Music is by the dazzling MC White Owl. Thanks again for joining me, and remember, keep writing. <laughs>